Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and we are joined by Ann Koshut and Kimberly Henkel of Springs in the Desert, a community of support born of the shared pain of infertility and the blessing of friendships which have grown from it. And it was started in 2019. Anne and Kimberly, you started the ministry when you met at the John Paul II Institute. Is that right? Well, not quite. We met each other at the John Paul II Institute when we were in graduate school. We graduated and we kind of went our separate ways. We each got married. And a number of years later, we happened to meet each other at a conference and we were sitting at the, at the dinner table and Kimberly began to share her struggle with infertility and her desire with her husband to pursue adoption. And that's the first that I had heard that she had that kind of a struggle. And to be honest with you, Andrew, that's the first that I heard of anybody struggling with infertility um, because I think this is something that is a really silent kind of suffering. We don't talk about it. And I certainly didn't talk about it except with a couple of really close girlfriends. And so um, meeting Kimberly after so many years and having another person say to me, I understand your pain because I'm going through it too. To me, that was like a revelation. We started talking with each other and I was asked at some point to write an article for an academic journal, Humanum, about infertility. And I asked Anne to write the article with me. And so the two of us got together, started writing this article about the need in the church and how there was just nothing. There was no accompaniment. You know, here, both of us had worked for the church and been very involved with the church and felt like we, we had nowhere to turn. We didn't know where to go for support and encouragement and all of that. So we wrote this paper. And at the end of it, we were like, I think we need to start this. So we started just with a blog, but pretty soon after we were invited to give a women's retreat in Philadelphia at a retreat center. And so it just took off from there. And we'll uh, we'll definitely link to that article on Humanum in the episode notes, along with the website uh, as a whole. And what you said about silence uh, kind of brings me to my first question, because as somebody who doesn't have any experience with this, on the one hand, I could see the silence around this being a source of suffering for couples. But on the other hand, I could also see the possibility of this aspect maybe drawing too much attention as if it like defines the couple's whole life. Which extreme do you think is more common? That's a great question, Andrew. And honestly, I think they're both pretty common. It's this kind of tug of war that we have inside of us, those of us who, who carry this particular cross, because we can tend to stay silent and isolate if we don't run in certain circles, if we don't kind of put ourselves out there, then we are in a sense protecting ourselves from intrusive questions and those kinds of things. Or we can simply try to kind of laugh off or make excuses for why we don't have children. We feel like we need to justify ourselves to people. On the other hand, we are in many ways kind of vulnerable to intrusive questions, to People may be looking at us or it's our perception that they see us as maybe not a truly Catholic couple, maybe not trying hard enough to have a child, uh, maybe not not doing everything that, that we need to do in order to be fruitful. And so I think 
that just shows really the complexity and, and the layers to infertility. Something that even me as a person having gone through it, didn't realize at the very beginning because I wasn't meeting other women and other couples who, who were going through this struggle. Yes, it can be extremely isolating to go through infertility and feel like you have nowhere to go. Most couples in the church are getting married and starting to have children. And there are lots of opportunities for like moms groups and things like that for women. And if you don't have children, well, you don't really feel like appropriate going and being around all the moms and they're talking about their children and it just, it feels awkward. And then you're kind of without a country, like you don't have anywhere to hang your hat. I mean, my husband and I were in a tool group, a teams of our lady group, and we were the only couple that didn't have children. And, you know, we would go to the meetings and, you know, the couples inevitably, somebody would be expecting a child (laughs) and I mean, which is great news, but it would always be a little hard for us because we just didn't feel like we could really identify or connect with them in that way. And, you know, when you have children, so much of your life is as about those children. And so it can feel like, all right, I don't, you know, I can't participate in this conversation, or maybe I'm not even being invited to some of the things because it's all people with kids and their kids are getting together. And, and a lot of adult friendships are formed around children and around the kids who are the same age and the parents start hanging out together. So when you don't have children, you just feel a little bit out, like you don't quite fit. The awkwardness can go the other way too, because you have people, for example, in a parish community, and they may not know kind of what to do with couples who are experiencing infertility, couples who don't have children. They don't know if they should reach out to them. They they don't know what to say. They don't know if maybe trying to invite them or include them in certain um, situations or aspects of ministry, if that will be hurtful to them. So in some ways, you know, we end up, each of us kind of isolating from each other because We're each sort of afraid to take that step forward and to say, can I participate with you or would you like to come and be a part of this group? Yeah. And I think part of the problem is actually not not at all the fault of people who don't have kids. Part of the problem, I think, is not necessarily the fault of, but it's a problem of the dynamic of having kids where I remember asking my parents, looking back on when they were raising me. I asked them, did they have friends outside of my friend's parents? And they said, no, not really. And I think that's the reality with a lot of parents who are raising kids is they either feel like they can't develop a social life outside their kids or they're not prioritizing that or something like that. And I think that that makes it that much harder on themselves as people who have kids and also people who don't. And it's sort of a just generally isolating effect. Right. I agree. And I mean, that is why we developed Springs in the Desert, because we wanted to have a place for people to come who could connect with other people experiencing the same, you know, the same difficulties, the same challenges, the same struggles um, together and to feel like, wait, I'm not alone. I'm not the only person feeling this way. Um, There can be a lot of common experiences, perhaps, you know, pain when you hear of a new birth announcement dread about going to another baby shower, things like this. And a lot of times women can feel very guilty about that and feel like something is wrong with them for having that feeling. And so in Springs in the Desert, we try to 
affirm that and say, you know what, this is actually part of your grieving process. You know, this can actually be connected. This is not you being selfish or envious. This is you grieving that very real loss of the inability to have a biological child. That is something that we grow up just expecting. And we, it is part, we feel like it's very much part of our identity as women. So then when we find out that that's not happening and and we're struggling and we may never become biological mothers, that is a real grief and it needs to be grieved. So in Springs in the Desert, we're trying to help women and couples to identify that as a true grief and be able to sort of move beyond it, like process it, be with others, be in a community of support. And then inevitably, like we want them to be able to find fruitfulness because God is calling every married couple to fruitfulness now so they can start finding fruitfulness in their lives right now. It doesn't mean the only way their marriage is going to be fruitful is through a biological child. There are many other avenues of fruitfulness, and and we help to try to encourage that. I think you might have just implicitly answered my next question. Do you think it's generally better for the couple's mental health to tell family and friends or not? Or do you think it depends on the particular situation? I definitely do. I think it is obviously I'm very open. I'm the one who talked about it and was like, oh, wow, somebody's actually talking about this because I, you know, I wanted people to be aware of, you know, what I was going through to understand that every child is a gift. We do not deserve children. This is a complete gift. And um, I think there can be sort of this thought in the church that, you know, you get married and you're supposed to have as many possible children as your body can possibly have. And the gifted nature of a child is sometimes missed. This notion that, you know what, just because we want a child doesn't mean that we're going to have one. Yeah. And just because it's so easy for some, but some other people to have a child doesn't mean it's like making a decision for everybody else. Well, it's been remarkable to me since I've started talking about it to find so many people in my church. I mean, and, and throughout, I mean, everywhere, but so many people telling me, you know, we could only have one or two children. We tried and tried and we were so open and, you know, we maybe the couple suffered several miscarriages and never told anybody, or maybe they only got pregnant one time and didn't know that they had any other problems, but they were never able to conceive again. It is remarkable all the stories that come forward. You know, there can be these assumptions when you go to church and you see a couple with just one or two children or maybe no children and you just think, oh, obviously they're contracepting. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's a really dangerous assumption. You know, you never want to just assume that because you have no idea what that couple is going through. Yeah, exactly. And so, okay, can I rant for a second? (laughs) Please do. We're here for it. (laughs) If a couple's living chastely, which obviously by all outward appearances they are, and that's all you have to go on, they're not responsible, like you're saying, for having a certain amount of kids. Because that's, not only is that not their situation, but that's not even the nature of marriage. I looked up in the order of matrimony, the right through which Jesus makes you sacramentally married in the church. The question before consent is not, are you willing to create life? Are you willing to have kids? It's, are you willing to accept children from God? The initiative of the creation of every human person is always God's first for the couple to accept if God takes that initiative. And it's not primarily their initiative to have the utmost control over. So like, it's not their fault if they don't have kids, because have doesn't mean the same thing that have means in the sense of have a party where you organize it and you take care of all the details and you invite the people and it happens because of you. Have means receive. 
And it's insane to me that people are not sensitive to that distinction when they talk to people who might or might not be suffering. Anyway, rant over. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's kind of a couple things at play. That's why we think this ministry is really so much more than you might say just about infertility. I mean, you could look at Springs in the Desert if infertility is not your experience and say, well, you know, that's great that they're doing that, but it has nothing to do with me. Actually, this is a pro-life issue. This is a pro-marriage issue. This is an issue for the new evangelization that, that really deeply touches our faith, who we are as sons and daughters of God. So to look at our assumptions about the Catholic family, what it means to be a good Catholic family, then that means the, you know, the family of my husband, who is the youngest of 16, is his family at the top, at the top tier of Catholic family? Right. I mean, if we start this kind of comparison, we're going to get caught up in numbers and in duty in these things that we think that God wants from us or expects from us in order to earn whatever he wants to give to us. And that is not how our relationship with him works. And so it's important for us in the church, for the the people that we see in the pews next to us to not look at them and automatically judge or assume what their situation is. And if you're doing that, if you're thinking that, then maybe instead of kind of pondering and, and dwelling on that, say a prayer for them because you don't know what their situation is. And they could probably use your prayers. We can all use more prayers from each other rather than trying to figure out what's going on in a particular life or a marriage. When telling others, can you talk about why some of these common reactions from other people are unhelpful? The first one, have you tried X reproductive technology? Yes, definitely. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you can expand that too. Have you tried acupuncture? Have you tried massage? Have you, have you started adoption papers? Because my sister's neighbor's cousin started an adoption process and got pregnant. <laughs> have you tried NAPRO? Have you done all of these different things? Okay. Yes, all of it. And maybe for somebody who just their personality is they tend to be curious about other people's lives and they don't understand why that question would be hurtful. Can you say a little bit about why that question is hard to hear? So first of all, to ask a person that you don't know if they have children is a perfectly honest and legitimate question right. um, to ask. It is when people feel like they need to probe a lot more deeply. For example, I was uh, with my husband back in his hometown and a neighbor was at his mother's house and somehow the conversation got around to children and she asked the question of us. And, you know, we said, no, uh, you know, we're, we're trying, God hasn't blessed us in this way yet. And she said, oh, which one of you is the problem? Ugh. So, um, oh gosh. those kinds of questions, I mean, you know, Andrew, you're having a, a, a good reaction to that. It's kind of unbelievable. And, and it's unbelievable kind of how rude or thoughtless some people can be. But I think oftentimes it, it's just really kind of a thoughtless reaction. I think also that oftentimes people are uncomfortable with suffering. Mm. 
And yeah. so they feel like they have to say something. It's like when someone dies, you know, you come up maybe with all of these different, oh, they're in heaven now, or they're in a much better place, or all of these things that are designed to, to offer comfort, and they're given in good faith, but they're really not helpful. They can be hurtful. And, you know, as much as it's nice to know that a loved one might be in heaven right now, I want them right here with me. So, so it's not as comforting as you think it is, but I think we're uncomfortable with that suffering. And we feel like we have to say something clever or helpful when really all that is necessary is to be silently present with someone or to simply say, I'm sorry, I'm praying for you. I love you. What can I do for you? Um, it's really much more simple. We complicate it because we think that we have to find a solution. And that's yeah. another yeah. important part of our ministry because so often people want to fix this problem for us. And certain things are, if you want to put it this way, fixable, right? If there's a particular issue with a woman's reproductive system, for example, there's disease, there are ways that her body can be restored and perhaps then pregnancy will will occur. But in many cases, it's not something that can just be fixed. And so more often than not, I think what we really want from people is just to know that they see us, that they hear us, that they love us, and that they're not thinking that we are less than because we are unable to have a child. That's that's really helpful to hear because for me personally, I think about this with reference to grieving people, like people who have, you know, lost a loved one or something like that. I don't mean to, you know, compare this one to one, but it as somebody who's outside that, it feels sort of similar. I'm pretty comfortable with death, but I'm not comfortable with grieving people because there's such a wide array of possible ways of grieving that they could be experiencing. And I always feel like no matter what I'm, what I might say, I'm just somehow going to say the wrong thing. So that's, that's really helpful to hear because that seems like the best way to help care for somebody. In the end, we're all kind of inadequate. The one who knows, the one who heals is Jesus. You know, if we can just give our presence and our support in the best way that we can, inadequate and and weak as we are, Jesus will pick up the slack. He'll he'll fill in those blanks. And you can also let your friends and loved ones who are struggling with infertility know about our ministry to say, hey, there's this you know, wonderful ministry that's really seeking to accompany couples who are going through infertility and, and let them know about Springs in the Desert. Because I've had quite a number of people come to me and ask for brochures to put in their churches. We have people that will get our brochures and, and take them to their doctors. My doctor, who is, is just a family practice doc, was overjoyed to have the brochures and said that um, my nurse practitioner said, well, she, she comes across a number of patients who are struggling with infertility, and she wants to be able to offer them something, some sort of you know, support and isn't sure what to, to give them. So, so that would be another way to sort of be able to, you know, offer something to the grieving person. Yeah, that's a good point. And I I bet the doctors would be grateful to have that resource so that they don't have to 
potentially exercise some less than optimal bedside manner. No, that's right. So we we have um, a lot of resources on our website at springsinthedesert.org. And we have resources that you can print off and give to your pastor, particularly um, suggestions for Mother's Day. I mean, that can be a particularly hard day of the year for, for women who are struggling with infertility. And there's ways to kind of sensitively handle that. Yeah. So we have resources for pastors, resources for doctors, NAPRO doctors, just to be a little bit more aware of like this spiritual support that we can offer uh, someone struggling with infertility. And hey, if you're listening to this and that sounds hard to you, you're already listening to this podcast, so we'll have those resources in the show notes anyway. We had a lot more to talk about, so we will be making this interview a two-parter. So be sure to check out the next episode for part two of our interview with Springs in the Desert. Our friends over at Eden Invitation are running a video series called Porch, and they have published three videos in that series so far, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. You should definitely check it out. And we are back to talk about I'm Your Man, a German film that is new to theaters, directed by Maria Schrader, and we are here to talk about it with Kara. Welcome back, Kara. Good to see you again. We are are erudite adults who... Because we have mature taste, we appreciate foreign films. And as a result, we watch this subtitled German movie starring Marin Eggert and Dan Stevens, who is English but speaks German. Speak for yourself. I was there because I'm a Downton Abbey fan. And that is how I got lured into this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And that is Dan Stevens's claim to fame, right? Yeah, yeah. I think he's been in a few other movies. But yes, primarily claim to fame fantastic foil to Lady Mary Crawley. This is not turning into a Downton Abbey podcast. We'll move on. But uh, I was actually very like, I know, I know no Germans. I have no idea uh, if his German is any good. But my reading the reviews online, he's apparently quite good in German. So they have a funny way of explaining that in the movie to German speakers watching, because they ask him, why do you have an English accent? And he says, well, because you you like Englishmen. You don't want somebody who's too familiar, but not too exotic. So this is the right level of foreign for your preferences. <laughs> I guess we should give a little background. Why would he have a fake English accent? Oh, and blanket spoiler warning for I'm Your Man, uh, even though it's sort of like an artsy movie that's not in like wide release. In case you do plan to see it, this is your warning. Why does he have some fake English accent that's not fake, a fake, fake English accent? So Dan Stevens is a robot who has been programmed specifically for our main character, Alma. Alma is actually, I guess you'd call her a classicist. She works in a museum. She's doing a research paper. And essentially her chair of her department has dangled in front of her some kind of funding reward. It's unclear. But in exchange for her reviewing these robots that are... It's unclear to me also if they're like all being produced for romantic intents. It seems as though that is like their primary... That's the impression I got too. Yeah, we're just using them for the most important role a human being can play. (laughs) Falling in love. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to argue with that, actually. But they, um, So she, she's supposed to be on like this three-week trial. And at the end of it, she's supposed to give her evaluation. Not just of like, is this a good idea? Like, are they good at creating these robots? But I think as an academic, she's also supposed to be giving her thoughts on should robots 
have rights and be allowed to participate in society in a more full way. At one point, her boss does lay out the stakes of this project that way. He said, this is going to go a long way to determining whether or not these things can vote or whether they can marry or whether they have rights or partial rights. So yeah, no, like that's very clearly stated up front. It's interesting because they sort of set it out at the beginning that this is more than just a rom-com. This is actually kind of about the nature of humanity and love. And we're going to explore this via a fake person who's been programmed for a woman. Any like immediate hot takes for you, Andrew? I uh, I have one. But... Well, since you have you have more history with Dan Stevens, maybe you should go first. <laughs> He's a great romantic foil. The first thing out of the gate that I appreciated, I was concerned that she was going to be your typical feminist scientist who wants nothing to do with romance. And that's why she was really skeptical of it. But they make it pretty clear pretty quickly that she actually is totally open to romance and like she clearly has a history with one of her colleagues that she comes across early on in the in the movie as the movie progresses it becomes more and more clear that like her issue with dan stevens like falling in love with him is far more philosophical than it is about i'm not the kind of woman to fall in love which i really appreciated that it was like she's a fully formed person who has multiple desires and like her career isn't the only desire that she has. Yeah. Very much appreciated that. Like really encouragingly philosophical outlook from the main character, uh, which we'll, we'll get into in a little bit, like not a hundred percent positive, but I kind of support her general stance here. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. I mean, we can, we can just get into it, but I was really kind of struck out, out of the gate that she certainly positions herself as kind of a liberal atheist. So she's not coming at the world from a religious perspective at all. But she's very concerned, basically from the get go about this person that you're or this thing you're presenting me with is not human. It was very interesting to me. And maybe it just reflects sort of our current zeitgeist of having a little bit more skepticism of technology. But I felt like that kind of comes back to this over and over again, just her general position that being human matters. And like, that is a thing that cannot just be programmed. Yeah, Alexa. (laughs) We probably, in addition to a spoiler warning, we probably also should have issued like an Alexa warning. You're probably going to want to disable any smart home devices while you're listening to this, if that was even really possible. I'm not sure it is, but (laughs) kind of the first big question this movie is tackling is personhood versus robotness because i've been talking to Kara about this all week i just refer to this movie as robot husband because that's that's how i think of it uh, especially in dialogue with other older movies like bicentennial man and also an episode of black mirror called be right back which they both tackle similar themes where there's a robot husband and i mean i guess in this movie they don't even pretend to be married Um, So it's not really accurate to say robot husband, but for simplicity's sake, that's the shorthand I'm using. So the experiment here, which she barely cooperates with, and then like cooperates with it more and more as the movie goes on, is whether or not this artificial intelligence, this robot husband played by Dan Stevens, can serve as a valid romantic partner in place of a real human being, in place of the real Dan Stevens, even. So she meets him, and it's pretty clear that he is... There's some room for him to become more convincing, because like he has a couple of stock answers, even though he's specially designed to make her happy. 
he, you know, answers poignantly, like she asks him, what's the meaning of life? And he says, to make the world a better place, which, okay, fine. That's not a very deep answer. But it's interesting that they are at least drawing your attention to questions like that. Yeah, I do think it's kind of interesting that they set that up because later on in the movie, it doesn't seem like that's actually a value she holds. No. So it's kind of, yeah, you're right. Like it's this, it's this extremely generic thing. And they do make a big deal at the beginning where it's like, he's been specifically designed for you. And within the first 15 minutes, it's very obvious that he has not been specifically designed for her because she, he is like really bad at <laughs> making her interested in him at all. The biggest example of this is the scene where she gets home and he has drawn a bathtub with candles and rose petals and like champagne flutes. It's very stereotypical. And she understands that. She is not taken in by this for one second. He says, well, 93% of German women prefer this. And she she immediately says, guess which group I'm in? <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's in the 7% because she understands that this is just something that's thrown out to placate her by, I don't know, the programmers who really like phoned it in that day when they were designing the algorithm. You think they try a little harder if like th there's a lot on the line here for them, I guess? <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a three-week trial and she's going to write a review at the end of this. So yeah, there's a lot on the line. The thing I, I also thought it was interesting, kind of the whole human thing like there's the stuff that's sort of stereotypical which you could almost forgive if you're trying to say that like a bunch of programmers were like i don't know what women are into <laughs> women are into this <laughs> that's being extremely it's very stereotyping but you know what i mean we're like people who are perhaps just like i don't know we're gonna do something generic but I think they sort of allude to it at the very beginning. She goes in and she's talking to like this researcher who works at the company who comes to be known later is actually a robot herself. She says that like one of the hardest things to get is flirting because it's it's all these little tiny calculations that the brain is making about like reading body language and like, is this person into it? You can't just program anybody to be good at flirting. It's also about the chemistry between two people. And this is really the point where I identified the most with the robot because I too find flirting to be a challenge to my algorithm. So <laughs> that was like his most relatable moment. Definitely. I think that everybody has been on a bad date where you're like, we're just not connecting. This is just not going well. Yeah. And if you haven't been on those dates, good for you. That's <laughs> Well, if I did, I wouldn't know it. Hence the problem with my algorithm. <laughs> you know, it's part of the human experience. Andrew, you should consider yourself privileged at this point. But yeah, I think I think it's interesting like the they do a good job in this movie kind of like setting up the conundrum and it's, I think that they do a nice job of sort of like slow rolling over the movie because at first she's like extremely closed off and basically like not even willing to entertain the sort of mental exercise. Yeah. Right. She's like, I just have, no, I want nothing to do with this. You're not a person. Stop trying to convince me that you're a person that I'm supposed to be into. I guess you're somebody I'm supposed to have sex with, but I know it's not real, whatever. And it was, it was frustrating early on when she was still in that mindset, but then she would have a conversation with him like he was a real person. And I'm just thinking if you're just in it for the funding and you're just running out the clock, treat him like a Roomba. 
She was way too against having him clean up. And I was like, girlfriend, I would be all over that. Yeah. No, thank you. I think you're right, though. Like, she would have these human conversations with him. And it made it clear that the challenge is that it's not so much about whether or not he's human. It's like, is he able to make her feel human? For instance, there's a scene where, I can't remember what they were. Oh, they, like, go to her dad and they start talking about memories it also becomes very clear that like he has been modeled after this guy that she had a crush on when she was you know 12 or something on a vacation yeah and it's very it's very interesting because that immediate connection you can see that there's a shift in her the way that she treats him but additionally it's sort of is this moment of he's acting more human but in a way that is like supporting her It's not so much about like, oh, I'm getting to know him. It's this idea that like he is tapping into things that she wants out of a partner. And like that's what makes her feel connected and is so confusing to her throughout the movie. That's a great point because it's not like he gradually grows and becomes more of a person, becomes more self-aware, which happens in the movie Her, where it's like a female AI that a human man falls in love with and the female AI like in the context of that movie gains sentience he doesn't he's a robot the whole movie but you're right like he's shifting the arena of how they're relating to don't worry about whether or not i'm a person or a robot worry about whether or not i make you feel good and early on she she sort of dismisses the notion of happiness by just equating it with endorphins and dopamine and it's just brain chemistry which for certain definitions of happiness is true, but not the way we would define happiness, obviously. But she distills it down to all that because, as we'll get to in a little while, she's an atheist, and she's she has a pretty mundane, naturalistic view of the world, which I think, for the most part, serves her well here because she's not vulnerable to sentimentality, which is exactly the sort of thing that the robot is trying to weaponize here. Mm. Exactly the sentimentality that we were supposed to be on guard against. Thank you, men, women, and the mystery of love. Thank you, JP2. Eleanor, always, always relevant. <laughs> yep. Thank you, love and responsibility. But yeah, as the movie goes along, she's sort of more willing to accept the sentimental bribe because he's doing a better job of winning her over. Even though she knows she knows he's not any more of a person than he was when they met. On the one hand, I will say this movie felt a little shallow to me. Like, I kind of wanted more from it. And I mean, it's a short movie. It's only like an hour and 45 minutes. And I think part of that shallowness is because this is kind of the level at which it operates, where it's like, it's this constant like, oh, he's fulfilling something I want. I push back against it. And there's, it's kind of like a repetitive motion of that realization over and over again. But it's a, it's a like worthwhile realization to be having. And one that like ultimately influences sort of her decision at the end. Yeah, because you're Mm -hmm. right. This, this movie doesn't go really deep and intellectual like it's a treatise. It's primarily concerned with personal relationality, right? It's concerned with how she's feeling and how she's relating with the world. And I think a big part of why she starts to give in more to the sentimentality that's on offer here is because she allows herself to be vulnerable and the the personal wounds in her past play a role in how she confides in the robot. So in the middle of the movie, she reveals that she had a miscarriage with a previous boyfriend, the guy she works with, Julian. She tells the robot, Tom, about it. And she kind of can't help but grow closer to him when she shares that part of her history with him. Yeah, I think that sort of capitalizing on somebody's personal woundedness is what makes them 
more susceptible to sentimentality. Mm. Not with the intention of actually healing her or walking with her in that woundedness, right? Those would be good things, but the robot's not capable of doing that. He's just capable of giving the impression, giving off the appearance that he's doing that. She obviously feels connected because he's listening. Yeah. He's giving it her, its due. There's also several moments in this movie where I I sort of appreciate that they like highlight his robotness by basically like not having any tact. And this was one one of the moments where he's like, oh, I see. He's like, you wanted this baby and you're old now and you won't be able to have any more children, which was like, wow, rough way to really put that out there, man. (laughs) That's just like go and say that to somebody. But it was it was a very interesting moment of like he does actually see her and understand her, but it's in a completely clinical way. And it felt like a turning point, even, I don't know if you would really, I guess you'd maybe call this the climax of the movie, that it's her also realizing that the fulfillment of that desire is literally impossible with somebody who is a robot. Even if I was still fertile, there is no procreative act to be had. I was getting real worried they were going to play some sort of bizarre robot insemination angle. Ugh. Yeah, I was, I'm was. i glad they did not go that <laughs> angle because I felt like that was definitely an option. That could have been. You're right. It could have gotten real, real bad. But I feel like that's why I could actually – I feel like I can recommend this movie because it it doesn't try to like make it seem as though you can fulfill the desire. This is not a person. And I thought it was a really interesting moment of – I mean, again, even though she's an atheist – and like this movie does not seem to be coming from a religious point of view at all. It's clearly acknowledging the reality of humanity. And certainly, you know, as Catholics, like we know that sex is supposed to be like both unitive and procreative, or at least should be allowed to have that potential. And certainly when the sex does eventually happen in this movie, it is neither of those things. So like caveat (laughs) there, like she's an atheist, she stays an atheist. And also the movie doesn't really have a problem with premarital sex um, between two quote unquote people who can't have kids who like are just not not open to life period but aside from that the major questions this movie is attempting to ask and answer are handled extremely well yeah i agree yeah so when she's talking to tom the robot about these problems and she feels like she's being understood she still at the same time acknowledges that the possibility that she's just talking to herself and Mm. this sort of felt like a metaphor for the anxiety that some people express about God, which I think is where this movie's explicit addressing of God comes into play. One, she talks about how she's an atheist. Two, one of the first questions she asks when she meets him is, do you believe in God? So God is some kind of, or belief in God is some kind of factor here. I think the movie is more or less on the side of atheism or at least agnosticism. But that talking to this thing for the purpose of gaining emotional comfort or an emotional security blanket is an anxiety that a lot of people have about their potential relationship with God. Some people wonder if God can really hear you in prayer or if you're just talking to yourself. Um, And I kind of got the sense that the movie was using that to comment on the robot issue because out of seemingly nowhere, she gives this monologue about how when she was growing up, she was at a party when she was like 14 years old And all the kids were inside dancing and she was out on the balcony and realized that she didn't believe in God. And that seemed to come out of nowhere to me. But I I think what's going on there is she's explaining her personality that while the majority, maybe even 93% of women or whatever, would want that emotional security and wouldn't care about whether or not there was another real person there that was the source of that 
emotional well-being. She cares about the truth, right? She is like a rigorous intellectual. And if there's no there there, if there's no God there, if there's no person in that robot, then it doesn't matter how good it makes me feel, right? I'm going to be committed to doing yeah. the hard thing and embrace the truth. Now, mm -hmm. good news for Alma, she doesn't have to worry about that because God really exists, whether he makes you feel good or bad. So it's, <laughs> in the case of God, she's mistaken, but how she applies it to this instance, to the robot, it's fruitful. It's helpful for her because it helps her persevere in understanding that Tom is not a real person and it doesn't matter how happy she thinks he's making her. He's not doing anything for her because he doesn't exist. He's just a Roomba. <laughs> I think it, they make a nice analogy there because as she's this is all kind of wrapped up in the conversation of her explaining her miscarriage. Yeah. And it's interesting because she's also explains that she's like, I made the commitment to myself that if I was on a plane that was going down, right. I wouldn't pray to God because I don't believe he's real. And he counters with he's like, you know, it's extremely human to want to pray when like you think your life is about to end, which I thought was I mean, even though they don't really, that's kind of the end of the conversation. Um, I think it is sort of pointing at the fact that, you know, the God-shaped hole is real and there's like a human impulse towards the divine. And like we know from divine revelation that God is real. But in addition to, you know, we know the reality, like there is a human inclination to the religious sense, I guess. Yeah. They're talking about like the God-shaped hole. Um, right. Like that is present in all human hearts. I think if you were to, if you were to ask them, they would say, look, the God-shaped hole is real. And the problem is that God isn't real. So part of being human is just living in that difficulty you know, forever until you die, and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. That's sort of the the background nihilism, but it happens to work yeah. out well here. Well, what's interesting about it too is like kind of connecting to what we were saying earlier. Like she really it matters to her that he's a real person. Yeah, you know, there is a humanism going on too. That like obviously people's humanity matters, and like the ontological reality of their personhood is a thing. It's not like this is all for naught and none of it matters. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't quite know how to like philosophically where that where that like sits exactly, but she definitely like being human and being fully human is an important thing in this movie. Yeah, because she meets another person in the experiment towards the end of the movie. There's another mm -hmm. guy who's a judge who gets a robot wife. Although interestingly, the age gap between the judge and his wife's apparent age is way wider than the age gap between Alma and Tom. Yeah. Oh, it's so weird. <laughs> and if this was an American movie, that guy's performance would be enough to convince the main character that, you know what? These robots aren't so bad after all. Maybe they really are people because his character in the moment is feeling real emotion. Like she makes me happy. She's kind to me. I've never, I thought love wasn't for me until I met my robot wife, Chloe. And this is the real deal. If it was a typical rom-com, I think, she would go for that. She would adopt that point of view. And she, to her credit, doesn't. Because the judge is absolutely wrong. Chloe is not kind to you, judge. She's not kind to anything because she can't be kind. She didn't make a decision to love you. She doesn't make decisions. You're just falling for the appearance of that. You know, at the kind of the capstone of that conversation, Chloe turns to him and she's like, you deserve to be treated well. Right. I was like, ooh, that was like a real, obviously, you know, the, the whole, they're programmed to say the thing that makes you feel best. It's like, 
it, it was just such a clear example of like she is saying exactly the thing he wants to hear yep. needs to hear in order to feel worthwhile and like she's the one who's giving him as you mentioned earlier this kind of like internal monologue it's like oh all the things i wanted to hear i am now hearing externally even though they're actually like from my mouth i realized i had a few moments during this movie where i was like oh this is fulfilling a lot of people's dreams in the sense that i know you talk to women or like you know go read any online forum there's so many people who are like why won't my husband just do x or why doesn't my boyfriend just say it this way to me it's like well that's on the one hand, yes, you know, we can express ways in which we would prefer to be communicated to. That can be very healthy for your relationship. But there's also a, like a slight bit of control and like wanting things to be a specific way that conforms to your desires that this is like 100% fulfilling. Right. Because the desire to have your robot spouse be kind to you is not enough to make you happy. You don't just want somebody to say nice things to you and to treat you the way you would like to be treated. You also want somebody who has their own desires, <laughs> who has their own initiative, and for whom you can do the same. They don't even really examine the possibility of whether or not the robots can receive love because they take it as a given that they just can't. Every, yeah. every time you see Tom on his own, he's never like yearning for anything. He's just waiting for the next thing to happen. Uh, whether it's, you know, raining out or whatever, doesn't really make a difference to him because there is no difference to him. He's just waiting for the next human input uh, so he can spit out the next output. They cannot be made for love. They're not capable of love. I do think that I'm Your Man is sort of interesting in that it does seem to make some very key assumptions about the nature of humanity. It's certainly not making the case that we have that we're like predestined or it's not making the case that oh you're just the collection of wires in your brain and you have no agency you know there's certainly a lot of people who what's that called like the mind brain problem they clearly don't subscribe to that because or at the very least the character of alma clearly doesn't subscribe to that she like holds a fundamental belief about humanity and relationship and making choices. Yeah. Uh, specifically like about desire that part of being human is that our desires remain unfulfilled, at least in part, which I think is an interesting way to frame it. If the robot is not able to fulfill her every desire, then he's not a successful, he's not achieving the purpose he was built for. Right. So he's, you know, he's not worth whatever money they're charging. But if he does do it, let's say that you have a perfect day where he fulfills every desire at the end of that day, you realize he just did something that human beings aren't capable of doing and that I think he's accomplished this, but only God is really capable of accomplishing this fulfillment of my every desire. So he's still not human and he still can't make me happy, even though he placated me for a day. So even if he's successful, he's not successful. When Alma's saying this at the end, that's like part of being human is to have unfulfilled desire. And she's sitting on the ping pong table and she says, I'm always going to be on this side of the table and you're always going to be over there. And the implication being there's like an unbridgeable gap. She's saying that desire is unfulfillable. I think she's saying it in an absolute sense, like permanently, not like we would say it's unfulfillable, except in the eschaton, except in the beatific vision, right? God is obviously capable of this, but she, being an atheist, doesn't entertain that possibility. So it's just a sentence fragment for her. There's never going to be an end to that sentence. Yeah. Gina, she writes her recommendation and basically narrates it mm -hmm. at the end of the movie. And 
I did think it was very interesting how explicit they were. The fact that her logic on it is, you know, these things are here to fulfill our desires. But like, it's not just that it's not possible. She does make this sort of societal argument that like, it is not good for man to be constantly fulfilled in what he wants. Like that is not the state of the human person. And like, this would be bad for us as a society. That was like a very interesting take. And again, I think this might be sort of like, we are living in a sort of, people are very down on Facebook and Instagram and a lot of social media that is sort of meant to feed us stimuli all the time. And it, I maybe just because I read a lot of like tech news, it felt very much in that vein of like, hey, we are constantly getting pinged by, you know, these little serotonin and dopamine hits. And ultimately, like, that is not the state that in which man is meant to live. Right. Yeah, that that review at the end, her completing her trial assignment, that was as close as the movie got to, like, a manifesto against Mm -hmm. not really even just technology. Technology as the means toward trying to heal every shortcoming in every ailment in our society whether you do it with technology or whether you do it some other way so i thought yeah that was that was a really well done voiceover and i kind of thought i kind of thought oh the movie's got some trick up its sleeve like she's giving this manifesto to fulfill the job and you know to say what she outwardly believes and then she's going to turn around and she's going to make an exception because she loves him or whatever and she doesn't i totally thought that too i was like Where's this going? You know, she's like going out. So she basically decides to go to the seaside village where she met, quote unquote, Tom, who he's apparently modeled after the this like childhood memory that she has. And while it does hit the the nail on the head with the fact that like, of course, he's there. But you're right. I was told like she gives this story about remembering that like she always thought that I think it was actually Thomas was the kid Yeah, that like Thomas was always like hovering right there, like about to give her a kiss and she'd open her eyes and he wasn't there. Yeah. And like, that's the end of the movie. I was like, whoa, I'm very, very impressed. Alma, let's go. Defender of human dignity. Even when it's really <laughs> tough, like it's, it's a tough decision she makes, but she, she hangs in there. She has her ups and downs along the way. You know, she's certainly not perfect. Even when the movie isn't criticizing her, there's some things she does that are worthy of criticism, but Alma Redemper's Mater, <laughs> am I right? Uh, so, actually, the movie is directed by a woman named Mary, Maria Schrader. Hey, what do you know? Huh. My parting thought on this was, it's not a long movie, so if you want something that's sort of light philosophy yeah. and actually might give you some hope about, like, the direction in which secular society is going, I found this to be quite a, an uplifting example. I was pretty impressed. Definitely. Yeah, this, this stands firmly against a few other movies. We mentioned Bicentennial Man. I, Robot is another one, uh, the Will Smith movie where the robot is basically acknowledged as being human, although it's not really in a romantic setting. But the Be Right Back episode of Black Mirror, which is really more on the same page with this movie, not pro-robot, but yeah, definitely Bicentennial Man and iRobot are pro-robot, whereas this is anti-robot, as are we. Please, in case it wasn't clear, do not have sex with a robot. It doesn't love you, it can't consent, and you can't consent to it. It doesn't deserve you. (laughs) I think we can wrap it up there. Carrot, thank you for joining us. Always good to be here. Thanks for having me. It would help us out a lot if you tell your friends about the podcast, leave us a review on iTunes, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Bye now, and God love you.